Each stage of a woman's life brings new possibilities, exciting choices, and sometimes difficult challenges. At Astellis, we understand women want solutions that enable a life of continued possibilities. We will work to elevate the conversation around women's midlife health and provide resources that demonstrate our commitment to women's changing healthcare needs during this stage. Women's Health at Astellis, powering possibilities for women in midlife. Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Talks podcast. My name is Dawn Davis. I'm a professor of dermatology and pediatrics at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. And it's my pleasure and privilege today to be speaking with my colleague and friend, Dr. Sunila Begunta, who's an expert in menopause and bone health. And she'll be teaching us today about how we can protect our musculoskeletal system with this transition for women during this critical and important time of life. So welcome, Sunila. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Davis, for having me on the podcast. It's a privilege to be here. Uh, would you mind just briefly introducing yourself to our audience? Sure. Yeah, it will be my pleasure. So I'm Sunila Vegunta. I'm an internist by training, a board-certified internist, and I've been in practice for the last 27 years. My primary interest is women's health, so I have been practicing women's health for the last 20 years. And even among women's health, you know, menopause and bone health are my special interests. So I am so happy to talk about this topic today. Thank you so much. I look forward to learning from you because this is really important. Can you tell us why bone health and menopause is even a thing? Why is this a topic of concern? Yeah, bone health is extremely important uh, for both men and women. And uh, women, especially since we go through menopause and our bone health significantly changes around menopause due to the hormonal decline, it becomes even more relevant to us. So as uh, you probably know, Dr. Davis, the bone health in women, you know, we actually start to accumulate and improve our bone density until the age of 35. So our bone density gets better and better and better. So we reach our peak bone mass around 35 years of age. After 35 years and up to the age of menopause and the average age of menopause in North America is about 51.4 years. So that's when most women actually go through menopause, but the range is like 45 through 55 years. That's when most women actually go through menopause. So until that age, most women actually maintain that bone density that they accumulated the peak bone mass until the age of 35 to 50, 51. But starting around perimenopausal time, that's like the time before menopause, and the five years around the last menstrual period, women can actually lose anywhere from five to 10% of their bone density, you know, so that's a significant decline in bone density, which can actually make them osteopenic and some women even osteoporotic. So that's why that's so significant and important to start focusing, you know, extra focusing their bone health around menopausal and perimenopausal time. So while this discussion is mostly going to focus on women, because we're talking to a healthcare professional audience, let's just briefly talk about men. Do men have bone density issues as they age and testosterone levels decline, or is this unique to women? So in osteopenia, osteoporosis are more predominant in women. So, you know, if there are 10 cases of osteoporosis, you know, nine out of those 10 are women who have osteoporosis. Men are blessed with a 
you know, most men are blessed with a better musculoskeletal system than women. So they have better bone mass and, you know, also better muscle mass. And they also do not go through menopause like women do. So there's not that steep decline in the hormones influencing their bone. But, you know, there are some men uh, who also can develop osteoporosis. You know, so if, yes, if women, uh, men lose their testosterone, like hypogonadism, they can actually develop osteoporosis. Or if these men are on glucocorticoids or other uh, factors that can influence their bone health, they can develop osteoporosis as well. So it's not an exclusively women's disease, even though it's predominantly a woman's disease. Yeah, that's very helpful to know. So can you tell me, you know, we've been talking about osteopenia and osteoporosis. What are the health consequences of having, you know, fragility fractures in perimenopausal, menopausal, and postmenopausal women, particularly when it comes to, for example, hip fractures, if you fall and, and things like that? Yeah, so that's the most unfortunate consequence of osteopenia and osteoporosis. So as the bone density declines, you know, so does the um, it's the increase in fracture risk for women. So the most important consequence of osteopenia or osteoporosis, especially, is susceptibility to uh, fragility fractures. So the difference between a regular fracture and a fragility fracture is. When women sustain a fracture, when they fall from a standing height, we call it a fragility fracture. Not the fractures that we sustain, you know, during a motor vehicle accident or a heavy object falls on us, you know, those are traumatic fractures. But fragility fractures are a sign that the bone quality or the bone quantity or the microarchitecture of the bone is not essentially good. These can actually compromise the overall quality of the bone and women can sustain fragility fractures. So uh, Dr. Davis, the most common sites that women can sustain fragility fractures are the hip, the wrist, and also the vertebrae. So these are the common places that women can actually fracture their bones, even without having any trauma. And the most consequential of all of these is the hip fracture. Unfortunately, fragility fractures of the hip are very common. And you know, the statistics actually show that almost 180,000 individuals enter nursing homes on a yearly basis in the United States just because of these fractures and the consequences of hip fractures. Just imagine a woman sustaining a hip fracture. First of all, you know, that needs surgical repair. And in addition to that, it needs prolonged stay in a skiff or a skilled nursing facility. And in spite of the surgery and the skilled nursing facility and all of that, the rehab and everything that's done, you know, a lot of these women kind of have some morbidity left. So they can actually have pain in their hip. They have mobility problems. They may be using a walker now. They may be using a cane or they're in a wheelchair and they're not as independent as they used to be. I have seen many women who, after sustaining a hip fracture, are not able to drive, not able to take care of themselves, and that kind of forces them into going into assisted cares or actually a nursing home. So that sounds like it's a large health care burden and also a large health care cost economic burden for not only the patient, but for society at large. Do you have any comments about that? Oh, absolutely. You know, it actually, the economic burden of just a hip fracture is, you know, runs in billions of dollars, not even millions of dollars. 
you know, just to kind of give you a figure, you know, the cost for treating osteoporotic fractures of people that's actually in the United States, Canada, and Europe, these countries alone is somewhere between 5,000 to 6,500 billion dollars. You know, we're not even taking into account the indirect costs, such as, you know, the disability and the loss of productivity of these individuals. So, What's you know, almost on their quality almost, of life. <laughs> I know it is staggering. The amount is really staggering. Not only that, you know, these individuals who sustain a fracture, almost like 25% of these individuals can experience a second fracture within three years having their index fracture. So that's also, you know, that adds to the healthcare costs. Well, since we want to hopefully prevent that or preclude that by upstream taking care of our bone health and preventing or slowing at least osteopenia and osteoporosis, what are some symptoms of osteopenia and osteoporosis and how can women recognize if they have these symptoms to then seek medical attention? Right. You know, unfortunately, you know, the osteopenia or osteoporosis are asymptomatic. Individuals do not have any symptoms related to osteopenia or osteoporosis. Some women kind of confuse osteoporosis from osteoarthritis, you know, which is completely different. So osteoarthritis is a condition where, you know, women can have um, pain in their joints because of the arthritis in their hips or knees or some other weight-bearing joints. But osteopenia, osteoporosis do not present with any symptoms. And the first symptom that manifests can be a fragility fracture. So, you know, especially in this weather, when the weather is so cold and it's icy, people falling from a standing height, they can actually sustain a fracture of the wrist, you know, there, or, you know, even a vertebral fracture. So that's when the women actually first become aware that they have a problem with their bone health. And if somebody coincidentally happens to have a traumatic fracture, will that accelerate or increase the risk factors that they will become more osteopenic or more osteoporotic? Or is that completely unrelated? It is completely unrelated, uh, Dr. Davis. So the having a traumatic fracture uh, sometimes can actually accelerate osteoarthritis, uh, but not predispose them to either osteopenia or osteoporosis. But there are some risk factors for osteopenia, osteoarthritis. So there is family history, of course. So a family history of a mother sustaining a fracture, that means that you know that individual is at a higher risk for osteopenia or osteoporosis. And of course, use of glucocorticoids. You know, so there are patients who come to me and they have used glucocorticoids for a condition such as asthma or a vascular disease or vasculitis or a certain type of arthritis. You know, they have been on steroids for a long period of time. So they are at a much higher risk for developing osteoporosis down the road. In addition to that, certain hereditary factors, you know, so there's certain racial factors also play into it. So non-Hispanic white women are at the highest risk for developing osteopenia, osteoporosis, followed by Asian and Latina patients. So uh, fortunately, you know, Black women have a much better bone density and at a relatively lower risk for developing osteoporosis and fractures. What about lifestyle factors like smoking, alcohol intake, body mass index? Are there lifestyle things that people can do to decrease their risk or at least decelerate the, the rapidity of bone loss? Excellent point, Dr. Davis, because you're absolutely right. Among the other risk factors, heavy alcohol drinking and cigarette smoking, 
these also increase the risk for osteopenia and osteoporosis. So the first thing we do recommend for these patients to improve their bone density is to stop smoking and to cut back on alcohol consumption. In addition to that, you know, women should take adequate amounts of calcium and vitamin D to improve their bone density. So for a premenopausal woman, it's about 1,200 milligrams of calcium. And in a postmenopausal woman without osteoporosis, it is still 1,200 milligrams of calcium. But if they do have osteoporosis, we recommend about 1,500 milligrams of calcium on a daily basis. So in addition to calcium, we also recommend vitamin D and the current recommendations are about 600 to 800 international units of vitamin D per day because vitamin D helps with the absorption of calcium from the gut and also kind of helps assimilate that calcium into the bones. So vitamin D is also essential for bone health. So one of the things we do see in uh, women who have chronic vitamin D deficiency, you know, they do have a higher risk for developing osteopenia, osteoporosis. We sometimes think that osteoporosis is a pediatric disease with a geriatric manifestation. So if you know what I mean. So some of us kind of grow up on milk and dairy products and, you know, they're athletic being doing weight bearing exercises and muscle strengthening exercises. And of course, you know, that lifestyle kind of gives them better bone density. And even if they lose some bone density around perimenopause, menopause, you know, they still maintain a good bone density just because of their previous pediatric lifestyle, you know, for lack of a better term. So in the, the opposite also holds true. So somebody who avidly avoids, you know, dairy products, which are rich in calcium, and of course, you know, are chronically vitamin D deficient and have been sedentary most of their life, they are, are at a much higher risk for developing osteoporosis. Well, thank you. I think that's a very poignant point. And as a pediatrician myself, I'll say that indeed we do focus and consider upfront dietary intake in children is so important because we're building our building blocks to then use over adulthood and we don't think of it that way. So it's a very important point. Thank you for emphasizing that. A lot of people don't understand the risk benefit, if you will, or link if there is one between weight and osteoporosis or osteopenia. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. Yes, that's an excellent point to Dr. Davis, because we do see that uh, undernourished individuals you know, who are underweight, BMI of less than 18, they are at a higher risk for developing osteoporosis. And also individuals with eating disorders, such as anorexia or bulimia, uh, because they do not absorb calcium or vitamin D. In addition to that, they do not have a good skeletal or a bone mass. They're at much higher risk for osteoporosis again. So our diet influences our bone health, certainly. And then conversely, if somebody has a generous BMI or an elevated BMI, is that sort of a weight bearing, if you will, at rest that helps you maintain bone density or is that not true? So, you know, as a matter of fact, you know, there are some studies which do suggest that a higher BMI can actually be helpful in maintaining bone density. You know, the science is really not clear but women who are on the heavier side and a BMI of greater than 30, their risk for osteoporosis is less than an average BMI patient. But again, it all also depends upon the lifestyle and their body composition. So some women have, you know, much bigger musculoskeletal mass, which gives them a higher BMI. And that means that they have a much better bone mineral density and much better musculoskeletal mass. 
everything we do with our health is a balance, isn't it? <laughs> oh, certainly, for sure. So well, well put. Let's say that someone is entering menopause or perimenopause and they're put on hormone replacement therapy, particularly estrogen. Does that help with bone density loss or impact it whatsoever? Absolutely. So one of the things I know we counsel all of our patients that we manage for perimenopause and menopause, first of all, is about lifestyle, you know, so to improve their lifestyle, they can add a little bit more resistance training, a little bit more weight bearing force that's going to help that steep decline that women experience in you know, their bone density around perimenopause and menopause. So it kind of, kind of flattens that steep decline. So that's the most important thing. Most essential thing is to correct any vitamin D deficiency and start taking an adequate amount of calcium. You know, dietary calcium is the best. So we provide them, you know, resources of what foods actually have the most amount of calcium. And if they're not able to take, you know, 1200 milligrams of calcium in their diet or through their diet, then we recommend calcium and vitamin D supplements. In addition to that, yes, you know, you're absolutely right. You know, hormone therapy can be very helpful for maintaining bone density. So estrogen, especially in the menopausal hormone therapy is helpful in improving bone density because it does have an osteoblastic effect. So it actually helps build bone and maintain bone. Not only that, you know, we do believe that it probably improves bone quality and microarchitecture as well. So because of all these multiple influences on bone health, estrogen does reduce the fracture risk for women. Oh, so cool. women who are on estrogen therapy have a lower risk of fracture compared to women who are not on estrogen therapy, like age-matched individuals. Okay, that's very helpful. And before we have everybody in the audience taking an excessive amount of calcium and vitamin D, do you want to talk about the risk factors of taking too much calcium and vitamin D? <laughs> <laughs> yes, you know, so I and I do want to provide some guidelines for taking calcium. So calcium should be taken in small amounts throughout the day. So you should not take a large amount of calcium at one time. Calcium supplements should not be taken with a laxative or a very high fiber diet or a lot of protein or caffeine, because all of these can diminish the calcium absorption. So calcium should be taken with food because, you know, calcium needs a little bit of acid to be absorbed. So a little bit of food is good with the calcium. So it should be taken with meals and as divided doses throughout the day. And I usually prefer calcium carbonate for a calcium supplement because it has the most amount of elemental calcium. So things that are available over the counter, there are many products, you know, whose brand names I'm not going to share today, but calcium carbonate has more elemental calcium. The next best option for calcium tablets is calcium citrate, and especially in individuals, you know, who are on a PPI proton pump inhibitor that are commonly used to treat acid reflux symptoms. So because there's no acid, calcium carbonate is not absorbed and calcium citrate is better absorbed in that no acid or achlorohydric uh, conditions of the stomach. But you know, the too much calcium is not a good thing either. So too much calcium, first of all, can give gut problems like bloating, because the unabsorbed calcium kind of passes through the colon and can cause a lot of flatulence and bloating and sometimes even constipation. And calcium beyond 4,000 milligrams can actually cause stone formation and, you know, like kidney stone formation. So we do not recommend such excessive amounts of calcium. 
There are some studies which are, I wouldn't say they are definitive studies, but there are some studies looking at the influence of too much calcium, coronary calcium. I know there's a lot of fear about that. Currently, we do not have like any concrete evidence that high calcium intake will increase coronary calcium scores. Thank you. That's very, very helpful. And I think we always have to remember that while we're an expert in one thing and we want to treat one thing, what we do on our patient has impact for their whole person. And so I appreciate your attention to that. Before Absolutely. Treatment and prevention. I know that we like to discuss equity, inclusion, and diversity and care of you know special populations in all of our podcasts. You told us earlier how people of different ethnicities and people who are skin of color tend to have the advantage of having less osteopenia or osteoporosis over time. Is there anything else particular about minority populations that you'd like to mention that's unique before we move on to treatment and prevention? Absolutely. So there are some social determinants of health which can influence bone health. So good nutrition and, you know, access to health literacy, improved health literacy about how exercise can improve one's bone density or muscle mass. That type of education is essential. So people who lack that health literacy or about, you know, nutrition, how they can have more calcium in their diet, you know, that actually influences their risk for osteoporosis down the road. And of course, you know, smoking and alcohol intake also influences. So there are a lot of lifestyle factors that are influenced by the social determinants of health, which can influence bone health and also access. You know, patients who have no health insurance, you know, they're probably not being tested whether they have you know, osteoporosis or they're at a higher risk for fracture or and are not being provided medication treatment or preventative measures you know, for bone health. So that seriously influences a woman's bone health. So thinking about testing and screening, let's talk about the DEXA scan. Is that the best test for osteopenia and osteoporosis? Is it the gold standard? Are there other things that people should do? Should you have them only as needed? Should you have them at regular intervals? Please educate us about testing. Dr. Davis, the indications for a DEXA scan, we do routinely recommend a DEXA scan for all women about 65 years of age, just to see you know, where their bone density is. But we do have to remember that 20% of women above the age of 50 have osteoporosis. So women with risk factors and above 50 years of age, you know, they should definitely consider having a DEXA scan done. DEXA scan is now the gold standard, uh, but in the future, we may have better tests which can detect or quantify not only the bone density, but the quality of the bone and also the microarchitecture. But until that time and until those tests are available, you know, what we are recommending is the DEXA scan. Excellent. Well, thank you. So let's talk about treatment and prevention. So can we treat osteoporosis? And if we can or cannot, how can we help decrease fracture risk or prevent fractures? Absolutely. So when there is osteoporosis diagnosed, it is important, first of all, to treat the osteoporosis and also to talk to patients about prevention of fractures because the most consequential event of osteoporosis is a fracture. So the essence of the management of osteoporosis is to protect our patients from having a fracture and to just to prevent it as much as we can. So when it comes to the treatment of osteoporosis, the most important thing is lifestyle modifications. Okay. And I think we talked about this a little bit, Dr. David, but I will talk again about 
how important it is you know, to counsel our patients on weight bearing and muscle strengthening exercises. Extremely important to train them about resistance training and to focus on muscle strengthening. Whatever builds muscle will build bone. So patients have to remember that. Not only that, they also have to remember that exercise is site specific. So if they're exercising their lower bodies, such as walking, jogging, you know, all of this will actually help improve their lower body you know, density, but they also have to work on their upper body because exercise is site specific, like I said. So incorporating upper body exercises is important and also working on their posture. So we do see that the posture starts to decline in women postmenopausally. And you know, the posture you know, will be helpful. Maintaining a good posture is helpful in keeping that fine bone mineral density intact. So I do counsel patients about you know, doing a variety of things with their exercise to, to incorporate not only jogging or jazzercise or dancing, which is all uh, weight-bearing, and also incorporating some other interesting upper body exercises. Among exercises, the only things that are not really weight-bearing are swimming. Biking is like partially weight-bearing. So everything else, you know, will help with bone density. You know, just simple walking is also very helpful. You know, in addition to that, we also recommend patients to stop excessive alcohol consumption and also to stop cigarette smoking, of course, which has, you know, multiple other benefits. And in addition to that, calcium and vitamin D, like we discussed, adequate amounts of calcium and adequate amounts of vitamin D taken appropriately is very important. In addition to all of these things, we have wonderful medications now for the management of osteoporosis. We have a multitude of medications with different classes. So broadly, these medications are divided into bone building medications, you know, which work on the bone building process, and also medications which work on bone breakdown, so which actually you know, slow down the bone breakdown. Most of the medications actually belong to the anti-resorptive or medications which work on the bone breakdown. So what are the first-line therapies for treatment of osteoporosis? So the first-line choices for treatment of osteoporosis are called bisphosphonates. So it's a broad category of medications, and there are several medications in this category. So what they do is they work on the bone breakdown. So they actually stop the bone or slow down the bone breakdown process. So the woman actually retains more bone at any point. So that actually helps improve their fracture risk. So bisphosphonates reduce a woman's fracture risk by 50%. So that's the most, you know, that's the amazing benefit of these medications. And most of these medications are now covered under Medicare and are inexpensive and are, you know, available as once a week, once a month, you know, different formulations. So the only places that or only contraindications to these medications are, you know, women who have esophageal problems, you know, like achalasia or a stricture or varices in the esophagus. And those are the conditions that we don't use them. Or if they have, you know, kidney problems, chronic kidney problems. Otherwise, most women can actually use these medications for a long period of time, and they're very helpful in reducing their fracture risk. In addition to that, you know, we have other medications now available. So you probably heard about denosumab, which is now available as once every six months injection, subcutaneous injection, which most of my patients find it very convenient to have. 
So that's available. And among the bone building medications, there's hidipatatide, which is an anabolic agent. So it actually helps build bone. We do use that in patients with severe osteoporosis who have probably sustained fragility fractures in the past. Excellent. Are there any other tips, tricks, or topics you would like to talk about today regarding bone health and osteopenia and menopause? So yes, you know, as a women's health provider who focuses on menopause and perimenopause and hormone therapy, now I do want to say something about the influence of uh, menopausal hormone therapy on bone health. We do encourage you know, symptomatic women who have no contraindications to start menopausal hormone therapy because menopausal hormone therapy has a lot of benefits you know, for a woman, especially in the, during the early menopausal phase, the first five years of menopause. So not only will it improve bone density and reduce fracture risk, it also is helpful for women to improve their quality of life. You know, it helps with their vasomotor symptoms, hot flashes, night sweats, you know, sleep, even mood. And some women also experience improvement in their sexual health. So in addition to that, it has other medical benefits, such as it reduces the risk for colon polyps, colon cancer, diabetes, and even heart disease. So many medical benefits to this. But currently, we do not recommend hormone therapy for the medical benefits, but we only recommend hormone therapy to women who are having symptoms, who have bothersome vasomotor symptoms with hot flashes and night sweats, which are not improving with you know, lifestyle, just lifestyle measures. But women have to remember that at some point, they have to exit menopausal hormone therapy down the road. And the benefits that they accumulate, you know, the bone health benefits that they accumulate will actually go away once they stop it. So we are not using estrogen therapy as first line for management of osteopenia, osteoporosis, even though it is beneficial and it can be used for symptomatic women. And when you stop that hormone therapy, the benefits that you've gained, is it an immediate loss or is it a slow depletion over time? It is a gradual decline in the benefits that they accumulated over time. And also one has to remember that the bone benefits are dose dependent. So women on lower doses will probably see some benefit, but not as much as women who are on higher doses of estrogen. Well, Dr. Begunta, I really appreciate your time and expertise. I've learned so much from you today, and this is a very important topic. It's been my pleasure to chat with you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And you know, I'm so happy that I was able to touch certain important points regarding menopause and bone health. Thank you so much, Dr. Davis. Thank you very much, Dr. Begunta, for joining us today on Mayo Clinic Talks podcast. It was my pleasure to interview you. Thank you very much today for listening and we appreciate the gift of your time. 